um, if you're with us this morning, we're going to be continuing our summer series through the book of Isaiah. We've been talking about how this book of Isaiah is all about two main themes. Our, our title for our... Oh, I'm going backwards somehow. Where are we going? Let me try, let me try the backward button. Maybe that'll help us out here. How about I'll just let you guys do it? Okay, all right. That sounds good. Sounds good. We're in the book of Isaiah. This morning we're going to be in chapters 24 and 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. And throughout this theme, we've been seeing that there are the two main themes of the book of Isaiah are judgment and hope. Judgment because all of us have rebelled against God and chosen to live life for ourselves. But hope because even for our rebellion and the destruction and death that it brings, God promises to be gracious and give forgiveness to those who repent, who turn from their rebellion and come to Him in faith. Judgment and hope are two of the most pressing realities in our world that we must wrap our minds around. Last week, we were looking at chapters 13 and through 19, but especially chapter 19, because we saw how in the first part of the book of Isaiah, these messages of judgment and hope are really specifically addressed to his people, Judah, and in and around the city of Jerusalem where Isaiah was living at the time. Then in chapters 13 through 19, we see the scope start to widen and God give messages of both judgment and hope to the surrounding nations. We especially saw that last week in chapter 19 with the nation of Egypt. And this week in chapter 24 and 25, the scope opens up all the way. And now we see this message of judgment and hope for the entire world. If you have your Bibles, look at the first couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. With the buyer, as with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. Encompassing everyone, all social classes. The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. What we have here in Isaiah 24 and 25 is Isaiah's apocalypse. His vision of the end of the world. Which I know is a very popular topic to talk about. And so beginning, I just want to acknowledge, we come from different places when it comes to... Some of you guys may have come from a church background that this was every Sunday. Death, judgment, fire, and brimstone. And you might be sitting here going, oh, here we go again. Some of you may have come from church backgrounds that are almost on the other side of that equation and who will so emphasize God's grace and forgiveness that they will actually intentionally avoid passages like this. And so you might go, wait, that's in the Bible? Some of you have not come from a church background at all, so there may not be any concept for something like this. But regardless, I just want to say from the start that wherever you've come from on this, the judgment of God upon the world isn't something that we're supposed to feel comfortable with. It's an uncomfortable topic, but it is a very important topic. So we dare not neglect it. Here's why this is so important. All of us live our lives and make decisions day to day with some end goal in mind, with some destination, some purpose that we're trying to get to. 
As you go through your day, how do you choose which option is best? Which things do you prioritize? Which things do you leave till later? Well, it all comes down to, well, where are you trying to go in life? What, what, is the, what are you aiming at? What's the target you're aiming at? Some of you are in the midst of education right now, and it's rigorous, and at times you go, why am I doing this? But you do it because at least in theory, you think this will help me get where I need to go. And if I don't know where I'm trying to go, maybe going to school will help me figure out where I want to go, right? Even the philosophy that says just live for the day, for today, just get what you can from each day, live each day like it's your last, is still based upon a vision of the end in which there is no ultimate purpose or meaning in life. So just do what you want. Either way, our decisions are driven by our view of the end. And what we have here in Isaiah 24 and 25 is God's vision of the end. We just sang a song, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. So he's saying, okay, you want me to be your vision. Here's the end goal I have intended. As the sovereign God of the universe, here's what I am orchestrating all events towards. So make your judgments, make your decisions, build relationships, invest your time and resources with this end in mind. This is why this is so important. This passage is meant to instill in us a sense of fear. It is. We ought to feel a heaviness in our hearts as we see what God intends for the rebellious world so that we might be persuaded, not, not just manipulated by fear, but persuaded that if Christ is the only solid rock, well, gosh, I better find refuge in Him. I better look to Him. It's meant to instill fear, but it's also meant to instill in us a profound sense of hope, a profound longing, because what God intends for those who take refuge in Him is something very, very good. Both judgment and hope we'll see in this passage. So again, look at verse 1. We just read it again. Judgment is coming on the entire earth. It will be global and it will be impartial. In listing out all those different social classes, if you will, he's saying this encompasses everyone. Now I want to pause here for one second because there is a lot of talk in our society, and I would say, even say rightly so, there is a lot of talk in our society today about the desire for equality, for people to be treated fairly and equally. And as Christians, we, we ought to be right in the thick of that conversation. Equality ought to matter to us deeply. And we must speak about the Bible's vision of human equality. But it may not make us popular in the midst of that discussion. The vision of human equality that the Bible has is this. Every human being is equally valuable before God regardless of their race, their gender, ability, social standing, whatever it is, because every single human being has been created in the image of God. Equally valuable. At the same time, every human being is equal in that they are all equally, we are all equally deserving of God's judgment. We are all equally in desperate need of salvation through Jesus Christ. Why? Why are all human beings, slave, master, whatever it is, equally deserving of God's judgment? Look at verse 4. It says, The earth mourns, and it withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest peoples of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled 
under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws. They have violated the statutes. They have broken the everlasting covenant. Why are all human beings equally deserving of God's judgment? Well, in the way that Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all violated God's sense of what is right and wrong. When it says here that they've broken the everlasting covenant, there's a lot of different views of what this could possibly mean. I mean, in one sense, because God's talking about the world as a whole, He could be referring to the covenant, the, the agreement, the, the, the commitment that He made with Adam and Eve in the beginning that they should be fruitful and multiply and fill and rule over the earth under His rule. The, the covenant which they broke when they ate from that tree in the midst of the garden. Others look at this and say, no, maybe this is talking about that covenant that God made with Noah after the flood when He put the rainbow up in the sky, which really was just a restatement of what He had said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, but with the added stipulation of punishment due to those who would kill their fellow humans. Either way, the point is that all people, all of us, have rebelled against God. And this rebellion has brought both us and the earth under a curse. Do you see that? It says the earth lies defiled under its habitat. A curse devours the earth. Now again, let's pause here for a second because this ties into another major conversation going on in our society. Within our culture, there is a lot of talk about the earth being defiled and polluted by humans. And again, this is where we as followers of Jesus should be right in the midst of that conversation. Not politicizing it, but, but understanding that the biblical story really does make the best sense out of what is wrong, both with our lives and with our world. Often within our culture, the conversation about humans defiling or polluting the earth really focuses almost like exclusively on the idea of, of physical pollution, of, of emissions, of, of uh, landfills, of chemicals, and so forth. And oftentimes when Christians do get up the nerve to speak in this conversation, we can often emphasize on the other side more the idea of, of moral pollution, of, 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 of committing sinful actions, whether or not it involves anything that is directly detrimental to the environment. We say, it's really not about greenhouse gases, it's about sin. And the question is, why do we have to choose between those? You see, both moral pollution and physical pollution are both symptoms of the larger problem of humanity's rebellion against God. Yes, we see clearly from Scripture that God cares about the environment. As a matter of fact, he calls us to care about it too. But we also see is that God cares supremely about human hearts because he created human hearts to love him supremely above all else. He designed our hearts to have him as king. When Todd had that chair out here the last couple of weeks, that was God's intended throne in our lives. And the idolatrous way that we put other created stuff in his place, that's the root problem. And unless or until you repent of that idolatry, of putting created stuff in the place of God in your life, you will never get to the root problem, either of what's wrong in your life and relationships or what's wrong in our world. But often that's where we stop as Christians. And I would say we need to keep going because, listen, 
If the root problem is our, is our alienation from God, but Jesus Christ has made a way to bring us near to him again, if that's the root problem, and Jesus has made a way for that root problem to be fixed, for our hearts to change so that we might learn to love God supremely again, well, then let's get busy chasing out the other manifestations in our life, whether in our relationships or in the way we treat the world. Do both. We don't have to. Only prioritize one over another. At the same time, it's very clear, and I have to say this emphatically, it is, we human beings cannot save the planet. That's not our job to save the planet. It's also very clearly not our job to ruin it. It is our job to seek to take care of it. It is God's job. God has promised to save the planet. And as we see, especially in a passage like this, God's vision, his plan to save what is wrong with our world involves both destruction and restoration. That's Anytime you think of minimizing the reality of sin in your life, understand just how deep that curse of our rebellion against God goes. He must cut deeply into the very fabric of our world to root it out. Look at verse 10. Because there's another aspect. So on one hand, we have to keep this global vision in mind. But then it gets really specific in a way. And I want to make sure we understand this. In verse 10, he begins to make reference to this city. And in talking about God's global judgment on the world, he keeps talking about this particular city. Now, we saw last week, as we looked at some of those other chapters, that Isaiah is not shy about calling out specific cities by name. But here in chapters 24 and 25, he doesn't give a name to this city. He just calls it the city. He's speaking symbolically, using this idea of the city, of human society as a whole. A city, biblically speaking, is basically just a large group of people living in close proximity to each other. And when you do that with sinful, imperfect people, what comes out is both the best and worst of humanity. So this city, this symbolic city of humanity, it, it, it's used in different ways. A lot of times in, in Scripture, the, the city of Babylon is spoken of very symbolically for the whole mass of human society as well. But it complies to every city in history, whether Rome or Berlin or L.A. or even a place like Simi Valley. And the vision that God gives Isaiah is of a day when he will judge sinful human society in mass, this city of man. And in its place... He will set up his perfect city, which we see talked about in verse 23. That the Lord of hosts will reign as king on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now, this obviously can't be speaking of like actual Jerusalem, the city in which Isaiah lived, because we've already seen how God has already prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. So just as the city speaks, speaks symbolically of human society, this Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is symbolic of the city of God, the idealized, perfect society with God as king. It's an idea that St. Augustine in the 5th century really developed out in his great work, The City of God, this idea of two different cities. Now, again, that's, that's written from the 5th century in a different language, and it's hard to understand. So I came across this, across this great quote from Tim Keller in which he kind of sums up this idea. Check this out. He says, the great spiritual conflict in history is truly a tale of two cities. 
It's a struggle between Babylon, representing the city of man, and Jerusalem, representing the city of God. The earthly city is a metaphor for human life structured without God, created for self-salvation, self-service, and self-glorification. It portrays a scene of exploitation and injustice. But God's city is a society based on His glory and on sacrificial service to God and neighbor. This city offers a scene of peace and righteousness. As St. Augustine put it, the humble city is the society of holy men and good angels. The proud city is the society of wicked men and evil angels. The one city began with the love of God. The other had its beginnings in the love of self. That's what he's talking about in this two-city reality we see here in Isaiah 24. God is confronting humanity's love of self by bringing destruction to this city of man. And as Isaiah describes what this destruction looks like, he keeps using the idea of songs, different songs that he hears or doesn't hear anymore. Look at verse 7. It says, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled, no more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. He's saying, man, I walk through the streets and where there used to just be drunken party music blasting at all hours. Now there's just the sound of an outcry. He says in verse 12, Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, or as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. He says desolation and destruction is coming to this city, but there's a small, little flicker of hope in this. It will not be utter, complete devastation. This little bit will remain. He says it's like when you beat an olive tree so the olives fall, but a couple up on the top stay there. When you go through a vineyard and harvest all the grapes, but you miss a cluster or two, there will be a remnant left. And we've seen this in the book of Isaiah already, whether God's talking about his people Judah or now about the world as a whole. This idea of a remnant preserved through God's judgment runs throughout all of Scripture. In the flood, in the days of Noah, it was only Noah and his family that remained. After God judged the people of Babylon and confused their languages and scattered them across the earth, it was only Abraham who was called into this special relationship with him. Ultimately, so that God could make a nation of him that ultimately would bring blessing to all nations. But even here we see it, would only, it will only be a remnant of those nations that will experience that blessing. In Revelation 5, when John has a vision of what that remnant looks like, he sees it as this gigantic crowd of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation that cannot be counted. So it's not like it's going to be just a small group in the end, but it will still be a small percentage of the totality of 
of humanity. This is heavy. Perhaps Jesus summed it up best in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this. He said, enter by the narrow gate, but the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We have to stop here for a second. There should be a heaviness and at the same time a gratitude. But there must, must not be a sense of superiority and pride that wells up within us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are one who, by the grace of God, will be part of that remnant, this should make you feel profoundly humble. Why did I deserve it? Thank you for this, Lord. I wasn't smarter than everybody else. I didn't figure this out. The only reason that I saw the narrow gate and took the hard path was because you opened my eyes to see it. This should make us again fall at God's feet and say, thank you for being so gracious to me. I didn't deserve it. And you know what? My friends, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers that don't know you, they don't deserve it either. But would you please... Be gracious to them and open their eyes while there's still time. If your experience of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ has led you to feel proud and superior to others, to treat those who don't believe with impatience or dismissiveness, then I would say you really need to question whether you've actually experienced the real grace of God. God has been gracious to us and patient with us. And that grace, that patience, leads us to be gracious and patient with others. So he doesn't hear these drinking songs from the city again. But when you look at verse 14, after the destruction of this city, Isaiah begins to hear something different. He says this, they lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Who's, who's singing? Well, over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. In the east, they give glory to God. In the coastlands or even the islands of the sea, they give glory to the name of God. He's hearing from the ends of the earth songs of praise. From every point on the compass, at the, in the midst of this destruction, he begins to see, hear people praising God. This, this remnant of people preserved through judgment begin to sing praises to God. Both because they acknowledge that he was right and just in bringing this judgment and praising him because they trusted him and were delivered through the judgment. But in the midst of this new song that Isaiah hears, he can't bring himself to join in yet. You see that in verse 16? I hear this, but I say, I waste away. Woe is me. The traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. He can't join the celebration. He doesn't say that it's wrong for the peoples to be singing. But Isaiah, in seeing all of this in this vision, is experiencing such conflicting emotions. The same emotions we should be feeling when we read a passage like this. 
On the one hand, he's saying it's right for God to judge and punish our rebellion. And it's right for us to praise Him for it because He's good. Yet at the same time, the, the gravity of this situation, the inescapability of this judgment for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ is so heavy upon Him that He's not in the mood to sing. Look at verse 17. Terror and pit and snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror will fall in the pit. And he whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare and the trap. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. It staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut in the wind. It's transgression. The weight of humanity's sin lies heavily upon it falls, and it will not rise again. But then in verse 21, we see it's not just the weight of human sin that lies against the earth. Look at this, verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Behind and above our human rebellion against God, there is spiritual rebellion against God as well. These mighty, majestic spiritual beings that God created to serve and glorify Him, in a similar way to humanity, rebelled against God and took everything that God had given them, all of that majesty and power, and seek to use it for their own ends in opposition to God. And according to the Bible, this spiritual rebellion against God is the driving force behind all of the evil that we see in our world. We humans definitely play our part, and we are accountable to God for our part. But again, here in verse 21, we see God is fully aware of all the forces that are amassed against Him. And to bring the restoration that He intends to bring he will, he will both punish the highest kings of earth and the mightiest spiritual beings. Verse 23, he goes even further. He says, even the moon and the sun will be confounded and ashamed. These, this moon and the sun that civilizations throughout history have worshipped as deities in their own right will be revealed to just be the created stuff that it is. Because Why? Because at that point, the Lord of hosts reigns as king on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Here, finally, in all this destruction, we see emerge the victory of the city of God over the rebellious city of man. We see God installed and reigning as king over everything. And now, finally, after seeing all of this devastation, and seeing God installed, enthroned, and glorified as king in his city. Now, finally, Isaiah finds his voice and starts to sing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. He says, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name because you have done wonderful things. Things planned from of old, faithful and sure. 
everything you promised to do, good and bad, destruction and restoration, you have done. You are sovereign. You will do what you say. And when we see it, we will praise Him. He goes on in his song and he says, I praise you, I exalt your name because you made that city, that rebellious human society, a heap. You made the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you because you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Did you catch in this song what it is that Isaiah is praising God for? He's praising God for how His justice is revealed not only in punishing the wicked, but also in being a stronghold and a shelter to the poor and the needy, those who were being oppressed by the wicked. This is huge. Justice, according to God's definition, includes both punishment of the wicked and protection and provision for those mistreated. Both of those come together as that which reveals God's heart and brings God's glory. This idea of the two sides of justice, both judgment and restoration, both punishment and protection, are so big, we're going to spend the next four weeks tracing this idea of God's judgment through the book of Isaiah, tracing the idea of God's justice. But for now, in this vision of the city of God, when it appears, The last question I want to ask is this. What will life in this city be like? What's it going to be like to actually be there? Look at what verse 6 says. On this mountain, Mount Zion, this heavenly, this perfect city of God, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The Baptists in here are like, hold on a second here. Aged wine? Yeah. You see, even when he talked back in verse 7 about the wine being gone and the drinking songs being gone, doesn't mean the wine's gone. There's going to be this beautiful, well-refined wine, this lavish Feast in God's presence. I got to teach this passage sitting in the chapel in the, in the town of Cana in the land of Israel a couple years ago. The place where Jesus turned water into wine. And they were baffled that, wow, why did the people save the good wine for the end? Jesus brought the better wine. I think well, that sign was just Jesus, that miracle that he did was to say, hey, remember that thing Isaiah talked about? I'm going to be the host of that feast. It's not time for that feast yet. But let me just give you a taste of it. Rich wine well refined for all and the best food for all peoples. Here again, like I talked last week, we see the global heart of our God. That He desires to amass for Himself people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Again, not every person, but a remnant from every nation and every generation. And it will not be a small party. 
Again, Revelation 5, we see this innumerable mass of humanity rescued by the grace of God. And the point of this feed is, feast is not just about how good the food and the wine is going to be. It's not just about the generosity of God in hosting and providing for this feast. It's also about what this feast says about those who have been invited to it. I came across a quote by a guy named Andrew Abernathy where he said this. He said, The prospect of attending a feast conveys far more than the chance to ingest food to meet one's daily nutritional requirements. I think he used his authority of that. He's basically saying it's not just about eating food. Not only that, he says an invitation to a feast means that the king wants you at the feast. It's a sign of honor to be in his presence, and it solidifies your identity as one of his people. That song we sang before, I am who you say that I am. Can you imagine what it will be like for those of you that trust in Jesus Christ to see this massive banquet spread out and to walk up and see a little place card in a chair with your name on it? That the king of the universe who you had rebelled against said, no, I will cover your sin. I will take the wrath of my justice for you so that I can put you at this table with me. I want you there. This is who I say you are. Let that sink in. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if God has opened your eyes to the reality of who his son is, it's because he wants you at that table. There can be no greater honor than that. Aim your life at that goal. Whatever brass ring you're chasing in your life, it will not compare to a seat at that table. The greatest part of this feast, though, is not just what God provides for us at the feast, but also what he takes away. Look at this. Okay, there's going to be this great feast with the good food and wine. And then verse 7. The Lord will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The best part's not the feast that's there. It's what's not there anymore. He cuts out this shroud, this veil that's over all nations, this death. And he says he'll swallow it up, which is a strange analogy, especially at a feast. It's like, God, you gave us good food and wine, and you're eating that? The idea of swallowing isn't talking about eating it. The point of what he's saying is it's like, he's not just going to get rid of it or push it off to the side. One guy said it, that this word swallow, it means to envelop death in such a way as to destroy it, to take it away, that it will be no more. And not just remove the reality of death, but deal with the sorrow and pain that death causes. That the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. That's such a beautiful image. Such a tender image. This is the image I get to see my wife model so often when one of our kids falls and scrapes their knee and they're crying and they're in pain. And she says, okay, come here. Sit in my lap. Here, let me just hold you. Take some deep breaths. Let me wipe your tears. We'll take care of it. This is such a beautiful image of our God saying, this is what I want. I want to take you in my arms with all your hurt, with all your questions, 
If you're in the midst of grief right now and wondering when life will ever go back to normal, this is the hope I want you to have. Not just that time heals all wounds, that it will get better over time. The hope I want you to have is that ultimately, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, God promises to ease your pain himself, personally. A day will come when you will get to come before him with all your questions, with all your pains, with all the things you don't understand, and come to him and pour it all out before him, and he will be enough for you that day. And you don't only have to wait for it in the future. The privilege that we have as children of God is that we can come and pour our heart to God in, out in prayer any time. Bring the questions. Bring the things we don't understand about what's going on in our lives. We know that this God who's promised to wipe away every tear from our faces is also the one who sent His Son, Isaiah 53 says, to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, to be with us in it. We follow Jesus who said that in this world we would have troubles, but we could take heart because he's overcome the world. If you're in the midst of grief right now, trust in Jesus Christ. He will bring you through. He will satisfy your pain with himself. Verse 8. He even says this. He says, I will take away the reproach from his people. He says, I will remove the reproach from his people from all the earth. This idea of reproach or shame or embarrassment or just the bad name, the shame that God's people have often borne in the eyes of the nations, which see them as fools for believing these things, for trusting in this book, for trusting in this God, for those even today who like to see us as being on the wrong side of history. He'll even remove the shame of our failure. Because the history of the church is far too obvious that those who claim the name of Jesus Christ have often very imperfectly reflected him to the world. Often directly contradicting his character with our actions. The shame of the suffering that God's people endure, all of it will be removed and replaced by honor in God's presence. And in response to all of that, his grace, his forgiveness, the removal of shame, the removal of death, the amazing food and wine, we see the people of God in verse 6, or in verse 9, us respond in another song. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, so let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I love the repeated, we waited for the Lord. We waited for him. We set our hearts on that destination. We made his city our end goal. We didn't chase after what we could get for ourselves today. We didn't chase after our own personal plans and goals only. We worked and waited for God to bring about his glorious end. And in the end, he will be worth the wait. He will be worth the wait. This is the glorious end that God has in mind for his world. In both the judgment and in the glory, it will be good. Is this the end goal that drives you in your day-to-day -day living? 
What do, what, what do you need to do differently or stop doing or start doing to set your trajectory toward this goal? One of the things that we do as a church family to set our trajectory toward that goal is communion. And that's the way that we're going to end our time together. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and they're going to start passing out the elements. And as they do, I'm going to just point our attention to a couple of things. Let me go back, actually. I had one more slide. It went away. Anyways, if you have your Bibles, look back at verse 8. And by verse 8, I mean verse 7. So much of this promise of what God will do one day on this mountain. It will be fulfilled in what we see in Revelation 21 of this vision of the new heaven and new earth, of this glorious new Jerusalem that descends from heaven as our forever home. Yet, as we wait for that day, trusting that God will be worth the wait, something like communion is such a great reminder not just of what God will one day do on that mountain, but what God has already done on the mountain of Jerusalem. It was on that mountain, in the city of Jerusalem, that Jesus was welcomed in as king on Palm Sunday. And the people praise him and they say, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, even as Jesus in the midst of that scene is weeping over the city because he sees the injustice and the devastation of it. It was on that mountain in the city of Jerusalem that Jesus took on the full brunt of Jerusalem's injustice and evil when they nailed him to the cross. But as he was on that cross, he was taking the full force of God's justice for us so that we might be forgiven. It was on that cross, Paul says in Colossians 2, that Jesus was even disarming the spiritual forces of evil that he was exposing them to public shame by triumphing over them through his cross. It was on that mountain that three days after Jesus, rose, or Jesus died, the veil of death was swallowed up for him. And he walked out of that tomb. It was on that mountain, in the city of Jerusalem, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the power of Satan, the power of sin, and even the power of death were decisively broken by Jesus Christ. And right now, he reigns as king over all the earth. Not yet from that mountain, but one day he will. Before that happened, before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the city of Jerusalem. It was on that mountain that Jesus shared a feast with his disciples. It was the Passover feast. And in the midst of that feast, he took the bread and the cup, these two simple things. And he said, this bread represents his body, which is for us. And he blessed it and he broke it and he passed it out to them and he said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Does everybody have that little cracker in your hand now? Again, this is this, one of these meals that we do together as followers of Jesus Christ. 
If you're someone in here who has not yet committed yourself to follow Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you, just don't, don't share in this meal with us. We're glad you're here to share and participate and witness as we do this. This is a very special thing that we do together as God's people. If you want to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus, after we sing one more song, we got some folks that would love to be up here to talk with you. But if you are here as a follower of Jesus and you have this simple little crack in your hand representing the body of our Lord, which is for us, let's take and let's eat this in remembrance of him. After the meal, he took one of the cups of wine, which he said represented the new and everlasting covenant in his blood. And then he says this really interesting thing in the midst of that meal. He says, truly I say to you, as he's holding this glass in his hand, he says, I will not eat, drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. I really think, can I get a cup from you there, Billy? I really think that this simple little meal, Jesus takes this simple little, I guess it's Welch's or whatever we got in our cups right now. He takes a simple little meal and says, do you understand? I'm doing this with you because this little thing points to a grand feast that is to come. I'm giving this to you both as an appetizer to give you a taste of what it is. And even as something to tide you over because it's not time for that big feast yet. But one day it is coming. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that every time we do this, eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and hosts this lavish feast for us. This points forward to that day. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, would you take this cup with me? And let's do this in remembrance and anticipation of him. Jesus, thank you again for having us at your table. We long for that day when you spread a lavish feast for all nations. We thank you that in your grace and your patience, you are still gathering people from all nations. In your amazing providence and wisdom, you use us in the midst of our imperfection and our continued need for growth to be the means by which you call people to this feast. Lord, I pray that even in this, these simple things like communion, you would be focusing our attention on the glorious hand you have for us, motivating us to live faithfully. We lift up our friends, our family members, our co-workers that, that have not trusted in you yet, and we confess to you, Lord, we want them to know this grace. We want them to know this peace. We want to have the boldness and wherewithal to be the ones to communicate this grace and peace to them. Would you enable us? Would you so build this hope within our hearts that we are able to give a reason for it to those around us? Lord, ultimately, we can't change hearts, but that is what you do every day. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We long for the day when we get to sit with you at your table and enjoy this life that you are preparing for us. I pray that we would be faithful until that day. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.